Remain standing for the gospel lesson, which is taken from John, chapter 4, beginning at verse 5. Hear the gospel of the Lord. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Early in 2006, I flew down to Tennessee for my presbytery exam. I had to be examined by the presbytery down there. I had accepted a call. I was at Westminster and I had accepted a call to a church down there. And in our system of government, the presbytery examines you. And when, while I was there, I was due to preach at the church where I had just accepted the call to be the pastor in Jackson, Tennessee, a little town in West Tennessee. Well, I arrived on a Saturday evening, and the airline lost my bags. Clothes, Geneva gown, everything. So there I was on a Saturday night, like 7 o'clock in Memphis, where I had never been, 
facing the very real prospect of preaching the next morning for the first time in my new church in jeans and a t-shirt. The stuff I put on to fl for the flight. So, of course, the airlines, this stuff, you know, they say, check, check on Monday. We'll see if we have your bags. So in a panic, I drive into the town, and I, you know, I find my way to where every gentleman goes for fine apparel, Coles. <laughs> and uh, I'm rather desperate, and this kind elderly lady comes over and says, you know, can I help you? I say, I sure hope so. And uh, she says, what are you looking for? I said, well, shoes, socks, pants, a belt, a shirt, a tie, and a suit jacket. And she says, oh, you're in trouble, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I'm in a little trouble. So she starts to get, see, I don't like, I don't like to shop. I can't shop. I'd rather go to the dentist than shop. Right. It's always a battle when my dear wife needs to buy me new clothes. It usually comes down to she goes and gets them and I consent to try them on if they come home. But in any case, she gets to work and about an hour later I'm walking out with the whole ensemble. And let's just say it was not a very successful adventure. Um, immediately upon my return home, Cheryl looks at it and says, you preached in that? <laughs> Her exact words were, you look like a pimp. <laughs> how, how was I to know? You know? <laughs> so needless to say, the clothes have since been returned. It's true, they've been returned. Apparently you can buy stuff at one Kohl's and return it to Kohl's in New York. Um, and I'm under strict orders never to shop alone because I apparently lack the gene required to dress myself adequately. Well, it's something of a metaphor, I think, because it turns out that in our spiritual lives, we're all as hapless as I am when it comes to being clothed properly. Right? And th thus, in the text this morning, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, tells us precisely what we're to put on and precisely what we're to take off. If we're going to be clothed, as the people of God. None of us are adequate to pick out this wardrobe. And it's a demanding wardrobe. It's a wardrobe that Paul elsewhere says is the putting on of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to look at this text from Ephesians 4 and the beginning of Ephesians 5 under four simple headings. Four simple headings. There's an old wardrobe. There's a new wardrobe. And then there's some applications. And then kind of a summary that Paul gives. An old wardrobe, a new wardrobe, the applications, and then the summary. So, he begins in verse 17, he charges the Ephesians that though they were Gentiles, they're no longer to live as the Gentiles do. And he gives us this really fearful description of Gentile corruption. Um... Now, of course, not all Gentiles live as horrifically as Paul's about to portray, just as all Christians don't live the Christian life consistently. But there is 
and Paul is generalizing here, there is a pagan way of life. And this is a typical, fully consistent manifestation of paganism. He says they walk in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. Notice the mental uh, nature of these terms. In verse 18, he's going to mention the ignorance that's in them. So he's already alluded to futility of mind, uh, darkness of understanding. Later on, he's going to talk about ignorance. Sometimes we're tempted to think that the unbeliever's problems are not intellectual. That they're simply matters of the heart. But Paul does not operate with that dichotomy between the head and the heart. Neither does the whole Bible. This is an American Christian thing. And while the head and the heart can be distinguished, they overlap a great deal. And so the apostle doesn't separate them out into these airtight components. He says the unbeliever has a grievous problem with his or her intellect, with their mind. They're in a state of intellectual darkness. There's a kind of futility of mind that Paul speaks of here. Cornelius Van Til was a longtime uh, professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He had a wonderful description of the plight of unbelieving mankind. He, he says the unbeliever is like a man made out of water, drowning in an ocean of water, trying to get out with a ladder of water. It's a dreadful thing to be cut off from the light of Christ, dreadful even for the mind. And these Gentiles in verse 18 are said to be separated from the life of God due to the ignorance that's in them, which Paul will say is also due to the blindness of their own hearts. So the darkness pervades the whole person, mind and heart, will and emotions. And out in this depiction of Gentile corruption, he says in verse 19, this means they've lost all sensitivity. Their consciences are not properly formed. Their past feeling, he says, due to this hardness or blindness. And what's the result if carried out consistently? Now again, it's not always carried out consistently. But the result would be that they give themselves over to sensuality of every kind and impurity. Here he means indecent behavior without any self-respect or even thought for social stigma. They are, the text says, full of greed. And greed here is to be understood as sexual in nature. They're sexually immoral in a greedy, never satisfied manners. So this is Paul's pretty sober, I think, and unblinking account of human degradation. I don't think anyone in here needs to, to, to be convinced that this is a relevant portrayal that we can see, sadly, in our own day. There's a kind of progression here. You can see it in Romans as well. A hardened heart leads to darkness and alienation from God, which leads to a kind of reckless sensuality. This is how people are normally decked out, dressed. This is the old wardrobe which the world dresses itself in. These are the clothes we naturally put on. And so we want to look secondly at the new wardrobe. There's a contrast here in the text. 
in verses 20 and 21. That, however, is not the way of life you have learned. Right? When you heard about Christ and you were taught in Him that the truth is in Jesus. So this behavior by the Gentile world, Paul says, is utterly incompatible with the Gospel. And I think it's important to notice how Paul deals with this. He doesn't invoke the law as an antidote to uncleanness among Gentile Christians. He invokes Jesus Christ and His Gospel of grace. Now, I recently heard a high school teacher say to me that the Christian children he teaches know the rules pretty well. And they do know the laws. They know they should not engage in premarital sex. They know that lying is wrong and stealing is wrong, etc. What they don't know, he said, is why these things are wrong. Other than perhaps the Bible says we shouldn't do them. So what they're missing is the instinct that Paul shows in this text. They're missing the whole liberating foundation for why the Bible commands what it does. And Paul gives us that answer here. These kinds of behavior are incompatible with the truth you've learned in Jesus, with being taught by Jesus, with being in Jesus. They're incompatible with the Gospel. Right? They're as absurd as a child dressed up in their Sunday best, wallowing around in the mud. So it's an appeal to the Gospel. You can't live this way because you were baptized into Jesus Christ. Because you belong to Christ. Because you're in Christ. These things are a contradiction of who you are. And if this is true of the people of God, and it is, then Paul gets to some clothing exchanges that have to happen in verse 2. We have to put off. We have to take some clothes off concerning our former conduct. Put off the old self, which is being corrupted with its deceitful desires. There's a sense in which everybody is living out of two wardrobe closets at the same time. You're either going to live out of the wardrobe that Christ provides or the wardrobe of the old man. So this is a call to take off your former wardrobe. Right? The old man, the person who we were apart from Christ, our fallen nature, this old man is depicted here as a suit of rotting clothing. Right? We're all born with the wrong clothes on. And we have to take them off. That's part of the reason I don't like going shopping. Because if you have to get a new piece of clothing, it's, there's like a five-fold procedure in my house. First, you have to take the old piece of clothing off. Secondly, you have to try the new clothes on. Third, and most humiliating, if you have four daughters, you have to model the new piece of clothing. Right. You know, then you have to take the new piece off, put the old piece on. I'd rather go to the gym if I'm going to do this. So I don't, but, but the point is, there's this arduous process. You have to take some stuff off and put some stuff on. And, and this is not easy. This is, is not hard. I, I'm, I'm mocking it, of course, on the, on the human and natural level. But it's very difficult. This is what 
the Christian life of crucifixion is. Right? This putting off happens in a certain once-for-all way in your conversion. Colossians 3 says, we have put off the old man and his deeds. Now, Paul's not asking us to do something here that Christ has not already done for us. Right? He's saying what he always says and what Scripture always says. Be who you are. Live out of your identity in Christ. Another way to put this is to say that the imperatives, all the commands, do this. Rest on the indicatives. The statements. God in Christ has done this, therefore you should do this. We don't have to crucify the old man because Paul says in Galatians, we have already crucified the flesh and its passions. But nevertheless, we have to live in that reality and so we're called here to stretch out to stretch every nerve, to strenuously appropriate the reality of our old man's crucifixion. And that means we have to lay him aside like a very bad suit of clothes. We're, we have to put him off, and in verse 24, look at verse 24, we're exhorted to put on the new self, the person Christ calls us to be. This is simply what the Reformed tradition with John Calvin called mortification, putting to death the old man, and vivification, living in, in the quickening power of the Spirit, putting on the new man. Death and resurrection in union with Jesus Christ. Put off the old clothes, put on the new clothes. This is the crux of what it means to be a Christian, to speak, to act, to feel, to will as a Christian. And again, this cannot be a human moral achievement. For this new man that we're called to put on, the text says this new man was created. Notice that in verse 24. Created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. No one gets to shop for their new wardrobe. It's given. It's provided. We simply put it on. It's like receiving a suit of clothes pre-approved by your wife. The righteousness of Christ clothes us from above. So, there's a question that arises here, and I think it's a very practical question. What's, what's the connection? How do we do this? How do we put off the old and put on the new? What's the link between the, the two calls to which the text summons us? And you can see this in verse 23. It says, be renewed in the attitude of your mind or in the spirit of your mind. This is the only phrase that Paul puts between laying aside the old man and putting on the new man. The renewal of your mind. And that means the renewal of your mind is the key to your moral and spiritual transformation. Right? Paul makes this very same point over in Romans chapter 12. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. And so the renewal of the mind is not just about the intellect, though of course it includes that. It's about the concrete renewal of the whole human being in Jesus Christ. And it's a continual call, and it will not happen 
without listening and placing ourselves under hearing the Word of God. This is the principal way, in fact, the chief way that God has enabled our minds to be renewed. He has given us His Word and Jesus lives and speaks as prophet through that Word to you for the renewal of your mind, for the reordering of your personality, for the redirecting of your whole person. There can be no renewal of our minds without a serious engagement with Holy Scripture. Right? The great biblical scholar, church father of the, of the fourth century, St. Jerome, used to say, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. This is not about um, trying to be more scholarly than someone else or smarter. This is about being obedient and listening to the risen Jesus Christ who speaks in Scripture to change us, to save us. And I, I, one of the things that I tend to be concerned about over time, not here because I haven't been here long enough, but in my time in the ministry, I noticed that people are not surprised or shocked, or scandalized, or dismantled, or undone by Scripture. Very rarely did I have lunch with someone who said, you know, I was working through this passage, and it just shattered my conception of, the, of myself or this world. There's a sense in which you pick up as a minister that we do not sit under this Word. We do not hear it as a prophetic Word. We're so familiar with it. Usually what we do when we hear some radical bit of teaching from Paul and Jesus is start explaining why that radical bit of teaching is A, not as radical as it sounds, and B, perfectly compatible with a middle-class lifestyle. Now again, I'm generalizing, and I include myself in these generalizations, but Scripture is the, is the place where Jesus Christ now risen speaks. And that, beloved, is a traumatic thing. But that's what's required if minds are going to be renewed. Because taking off the old clothes is really hard. They're so comfortable and they're so natural. They fit so nicely. They have to repeatedly be put off. They find their way back on. And so this is a lifelong battle to renew and restructure the mind. And that brings us to the third point, the applications. So what does it look like to change your clothes? Paul has a, has a, a series of about four applications, starting in verse 25. First, put away lying and tell the truth. Just as Jesus is the truth, so truth-telling is to characterize His people. But notice the reason given here at the end of verse 25. For we are members of one body. Paul still has this sacred unity of the church in mind, which he spent so much time on in chapters 2 and 3 in the earlier part of chapter 4. Sin has a corporate dimension. To lie is to mangle the body of Christ, of which one is a member. It's a form of self-laceration. Secondly, put off unrighteous anger and ensure that your anger is righteous. Right, verse 26, in your anger do not sin. Of course it's possible 
Indeed, it's, it's necessary in some situations to have a kind of righteous anger. But the text here is aware that anger is almost always accompanied by sin, or at least it easily slides into sinful anger. But our anger is almost always much worse than the offense which provoked it. That's how slick and tricky and deceitful the human heart is. Angry people end up attacking their own well-being. The novelist Frederick Buchner describes this well. He says this, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last morsel of both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. This is what happens when we nurse anger even if the anger was justly provoked. And that's why the text says, don't even let the sun go down on your anger. There's a concrete piece of speech from Jesus Christ. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Which doesn't mean that if you live in Alaska, you can stay angry for six months. Or you get an extra hour of anger during daylight savings time. It means don't nurse it. Anger should end on the very day it's born. Think of that. Your anger should end on the very day that it's born. And to not do so is to give Satan, the enemy of the body of Christ, an opportunity to divide and to conquer. Anger is an opportunity, a satanic opportunity to disturb the peace of Christ's body. Third, Paul says, don't steal. Rather, labor. Be generous. You see this in verse 28. The thief is, is not only to stop stealing, but he's to labor so that he can give to those in need. Now, theft may be something we think is not an immediate problem, but it is certainly a social phenomenon that still exists and still is very real. There was a recent study by the American Psychological Association. It, it found that department stores, chain stores in the United States, lose over $8 billion, with a B, billion dollars a year. It broke down the causes of their losses. 10% about was due to clerical error. 30% due to shoplifting. 30% of this is due to people coming in and stealing the goods. But a full 60% of these losses were due to theft by employees. Everybody wants something for nothing. And theft is very much still with us. It needs to be replaced, the text says, with work and then liberal generosity. This is why taking off these old clothes, putting on these new clothes, is a very concrete, practical thing. Fourth, he says, put off corrupt speech and speak only to build others up. Verse 29, 
Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what's helpful for building others up. Speech is, of course, a key sign of which wardrobe you're wearing, which man is making his appearance. Jesus tells us that we're going to give an account for every careless word we speak. Since language is a gift of God and our tongues are not our own, they should be used for edification. Right? To build up, to impart grace, to ensure unity and peace in the body. St. Augustine, the great St. Augustine had a motto and he had it hung on his dining room wall. It said, he who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. A lot of people would be eaten by themselves, wouldn't they? He who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. A conversation is to be an ongoing benediction pronounced on the body of Christ. And so Paul adds at this point, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, the Spirit is a person, and He's gentle. He has a sensitive nature. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. You can kind of scare Him off. Because He created one body in which we are placed and he dwells in us and in all the members. And our speech can grieve him because it harms the ones he has baptized into the body and sealed for that great day of redemption. So finally, the summary. The summary. The apostle summarizes all the evils we're to put off in verse 31. Get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice. Right? He could have gone on. The whole point is get rid of the whole old man, live out of the new man in Jesus Christ. Right? There's to be no, you know, you don't walk around with your pajamas and a tie on. Get rid of the one wardrobe, work on the other wardrobe. You know, recently one of my girls said to me, one of my older daughters said to me, Dad, you need some new clothes. This is, a, this is an ongoing thing in our house. And um, I said, I don't need new clothes. The clothes I have are fine. Blah, blah, blah. What do I need new clothes for? And she said, you look uh, frumpy. I said, well, look, I'm a middle-aged man. How am I supposed to look? And she said, you, sh you should look. Now, mind you, she's like 27 years old. She said, uh, you, you need to look more sassy. I said, I need to look more sassy? She said, yeah, we bought you some clothes. Try these on. Try these clothes on. So I go in the back room, and I, I try them on. I come out, and I say, what do you think? Um, frumpy or sassy? And she says, eh, frassy. She says, hey, fra you're kind of, you know, kind of frassy. See, th that option is not available to you, right? You have to put the whole old wardrobe away, put the whole new wardrobe on. And so, this means being kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God and Christ forgave you. Right? This is the rationale for all this moral effort, for all the anguish of the Christian life. What's the rationale? God in Christ has forgiven your sins. 
then we should treat others in that light. To the merciful, God shows himself merciful. Right? And the summary concludes in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Be imitators of God. Right? To put the new man on is to be an imitator of God. Right? We live in a culture where all the wrong people and all the wrong things are imitated. So I want to exhort you. Imitate God. Make Him your role model. Ape His kindness and His compassion and His prolific, free, tender mercy. We're to walk in the way of love, Paul says, just as Christ loved, himself, loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice for God. And that brings us back to this crucial center point. That fragrant sacrifice of Christ. That's the sure ground on which all of this happens. In which we present ourselves as living sacrifices. And so by and in and with Him then, let us put off the old self, put on the new self. Be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And live in this divinely given wardrobe of purity and truth and peace and love. Amen.